Howdy, y'all. So glad that you're joining me once again for this edition of the History of Christianity. We're on part 11. We'll be talking today about the Imperial Church. If you are joining me for the first time, so glad that you're here. I would encourage you to go back and listen to the first 10 parts of this series so that you'll really understand where we're at. With this part, we are beginning a new chapter in the life of the church. Up until this time, the church has been a group that was not accepted by the original Jewish community that it was born in, and then as it moved to the West, was not accepted in the pagan world that it lived in. In fact, we have heard numerous times about the different persecutions of the Christians. As we enter now into the fourth century, that time has passed. The persecution time is gone. Now we're at a time in which Christianity is very much accepted by the state. We see that beginning with this time period, and we see that because of one man, and that is Emperor Constantine. We left off last episode, we talked a little bit about Constantine, but in order for us to understand the influence that he had and the way that he was able to shape the church and make a big impact on it, we need to understand how he came into power. Prior to Constantine's battle for a larger part of the empire, he developed a strong base of operations in Gaul and Great Britain. Constantine was the kind of guy, you'll see this as we go through this episode, he was one that was willing to bide his time and wait. He was very shrewd. He was a great tactician. And he knew that there was a time for action, but there was also a time to pull back and wait. Constantine sat in the western part of the empire, and he waited for the right moment to make his move. And during that time, he developed a very strong base of operations in western Europe. He spent five years strengthening the borders of his base against the barbarians. The entire Roman Empire was under threat of barbarian invasion. Constantine took this seriously. He was known for his love of luxury and pomp. That wasn't something that was very endearing for the common people, but he did win the gratitude of his subjects by protecting them from the barbarian invasions. They were very glad, and they recognized that Constantine put a big emphasis on securing the borders. So even though he did some things that probably people didn't like, like all rulers do, they did really love and appreciate his protection of them. In his military campaign against Maxentius, Constantine only used about one-fourth of his total military resources. He did not want to move that other three-fourths because he didn't want to allow for the barbarians to have an opportunity to come in and invade his territory. So he's very smart. He waited until he knew one-fourth of his military resources would be enough for his campaign as he moved into that territory that was controlled by Maxentius. He also knew that he needed to secure the loyalty of Licinius, and he did that by offering his half-sister Constance in marriage to Licinius. Any one of you who is a student of history knows that this was the way a lot of kingdoms had treaties. A lot of territories, different nations had treaties. They would marry off their relatives to one another. And the thinking was that if you're married to a relative of mine, we got a family connection, and maybe things will stay at peace. We know also from history a lot of times that did not happen, and it didn't happen in this case either, but 
it did for a little while. So Constantine knew that he needed to have the help of Licinius because Licinius was one of two primary people who controlled the eastern part of the empire. The other one was Maximinus Dia. Constantine now has control of the entire western part of the Roman Empire. Well, with two guys there, Licinius and Maximinus Dia, they weren't going to allow one to split the territory with the other. They both wanted control of the entire east part. Actually, all three of these guys wanted control of everything, but you have to start one place at a time. Constantine had kind of already done that on the western part. So Licinius knew that he needed to do that on his side. Licinius did defeat Maximinus in battle near Byzantium. Soon after that battle, Maximinus died, and that took the rival out. So Licinius now has control of the entire Eastern Empire. His territory consisted of the area east of Italy, and he also got Egypt in that. Constantine held the Western Empire. He had Italy, he had Western Europe, and he also had the north part of Africa. So these two guys were in control of the entire Roman Empire. One ruled the West, one ruled the East. They had a relationship by marriage. It seemed like maybe they could work together and just keep things settled. You've got half, I've got half. Let's stay together. Let's, let's keep this thing going. Everything's going really well. No, that's not what either one of these guys wanted. They were ambitious, and they both thought that they should be the emperor of the entire Roman Empire, and that's what both of them decided that they were going to do. Peace was maintained for a while, but it wasn't very long before hostilities broke out. And with that brought a battle for the empire. It started because of a relative of Licinius who came into Constantine's territory and was part of a conspiracy to kill Constantine. Constantine found out about this, and the relative knew that he found out about it, and he fled back to Licinius' territory because he knew he would be executed if he stayed where he was. So Constantine got a hold of his brother-in-law and said, hey, by the way, one of your relatives was over here and wanted to kill me. I'd like you to go ahead and send him back, and I will execute him. Well, Licinius wasn't having anything to do with that. He absolutely refused. Things got very tense, and finally Licinius declared war on Constantine. But Constantine was the one who invaded Licinius' territories first. There were two initial battles, and they were indecisive, but then on the third battle, Constantine took Byzantium. This was a very important place, not just in this battle, but even in the history of European and Asian relations as we go through the Middle East. This was kind of one of those very important territories which was on the border of both sides. And it was a major strategical advantage to have control of it. This left Licinius, who was actually on the European side of his territories, cut off from his main resources in Asia. He couldn't go through Byzantium. He couldn't send communications. He couldn't get resupplied. He was in trouble, and he knew that. Once that happened, Licinius had no choice but to sue for peace. In AD 314, Constantine took most of Licinius's European territories, but he left the rest of his territory alone, Licinius's territory. The reason for this is Constantine had to make a decision. He could have pressed on and tried to defeat Licinius there, but he would have been taking a risk on a couple of counts. First of all, 
he would have had you tie up way more of his military resources than he would have wanted to. And in that battle with Licinius, it would have been very possible that the barbarians would have gotten a foothold in the western territory that he controlled. He didn't want to take that chance. The other thing was he wasn't completely sure that he would win that battle. He thought that he probably would, and historically, looking back on it, he, he very likely could have. But it was still a great risk. He didn't feel confident that he would win, and if he lost that battle, he would lose everything. He had already gained so much by winning this initial confrontation. He knew that there was going to be another one. It wasn't going to just end here. So as Constantine did, he decided to pull back. He took a victory here. He got some territories that he didn't have before. He did allow Licinius to go back. But with that victory in hand, Constantine went back to bide his time. And there was another period of peace then. Constantine waited his time out. He consolidated his power. He waited. As we know, victory did come for Constantine. In A.D. 322, Constantine invaded Licinius's territories. Now, what Constantine's story was, was that there was a barbarian group that came in, and Constantine was just chasing them, and it just happened to be that he went into their territory. Kind of like if y'all grew up watching the Dukes of Hazard, when you get to the county line, you weren't supposed to go on the county line, but sometimes, you know, uh, Roscoe would chase the Duke boys in the next county. He really wasn't supposed to do that, but he's pursuing them. You may not realize exactly where you're at. Constantine's just like, hey, I'm, I'm trying to fight these guys off. I'm trying to protect you, really. I didn't want them to get you, too, so I had to come in. Well, Licinius didn't buy that, and so war broke out again. Licinius had taken some measures against Christians in his territories who preferred Constantine. And it seems like this was maybe a source of some of the problems now, although really what this was about is two guys that wanted control of the whole thing. Licinius was not looked on as favorably by Christians as Constantine, even though he didn't persecute them. Remember from last episode, Constantine is the one who, who put the, the letters, the Greek letters, Chi and Rho, on the soldiers as they went into battle because those are the two, the first two Greek letters in the name for Jesus Christ, for Christ. And Christians recognized that. They looked very favorably on Constantine. And here's what happened with Licinius. He got wind from some of the Christian leaders on his side that they were praying for Constantine to win out against Licinius. Well, Licinius was not a Christian. And he didn't really pay much attention to the Christian God, except that he didn't want anybody praying to that God to defeat him. We have to remember that in this day, these people believed in all the gods. They believed in that every nation had a God, every people group had a God. They believed in multiple gods themselves that they worshipped. And that didn't mean that they were going to worship your God, but they also weren't going to take it for granted that that God couldn't do something to them. So Licinius looked at it as a treasonous act for these people to be praying against him, when he's their emperor and God might come down against him. So he took some measures against Christians at this time. It wasn't a heavy persecution like we've seen in the past. It definitely wasn't another time of persecution. That time had passed, but he did take some measures against the Christians. And later Christians, historians, as a result of this, paint Licinius in a very bad light. And they tended to present Constantine as a defender of the faith. Neither of these positions was entirely correct. Licinius was not totally evil and hateful, and Constantine was not the pure defender of the Christian faith that he was presented as. We'll see more about that later on. 
It happened that Constantine's smaller army was able to defeat Licinius's forces at Adrenopool, and then Licinius fled to Byzantium. Constantine pursued Licinius through Byzantium into Asia Minor, and finally, in a series of battles, he defeated him. Licinius knew he was beat, and he surrendered. Constantine agreed to spare Licinius's life in exchange for his abdication. One reason for this was because his sister Constance was married to Licinius, and she asked him not to kill him. Constantine let him live. Licinius agreed to give up his rule, and at this time, Constantine began a 13-year reign of the entire Roman Empire. However, shortly after Constantine took power, Licinius was murdered. It's thought by some, if you read the historians of the day, that Constantine either ordered this to happen or he didn't order it, but he knew it was going to happen and he was fine with it. Don't know if that's the case. It very well could be. Most of these leaders, if they defeat somebody, they don't keep them around. What about the conversion of Constantine to Christianity? This is the really, really important event. And it's actually an event that has been debated through the years. And even among people who study religious history or world history, it's debated to this day. There's a lot of confusion. There's a lot of things that are just not exactly the same about Constantine's conversion as it would have been for any other Christian that came along at that same time. Christian authors of the time viewed the conversion of Constantine from different perspectives, so this is part of the confusion. There were different people within the Christian community that looked at it very differently. There was one group that saw it as the goal towards which the history of the church and of the empire had always been moving. They thought of this as being a huge victory. How could you not see it as a victory that the message of the Christian church, the message, the gospel of Jesus Christ, had so penetrated the world at this point that the emperor of the Roman Empire, the very empire who had, through its leaders, persecuted and killed and tortured so many Christians before, the emperor actually converted to Christianity. You have to look at that as a huge victory. You read in the New Testament, Paul himself, as he went to trial, when he would go before those leaders, he would share his faith with them in an effort to help win them to Christ. When he was in prison, he shared his faith with those guards. This was something that the church could look at, even through New Testament times, as being a, a goal. And now it had been achieved. And they saw that as a great victory. But there are definitely others that saw Constantine as not really being on that high level. They looked at him as being a shrewd politician who saw that there were some advantages of a quote-unquote conversion, and he took that opportunity. I know that's strange for us today because none of our politicians would ever try to take advantage of any situation or ever be insincere, but just take my word for it that did happen at times in history, and some of the people at this time looked at Constantine as being an opportunist. If you read the documents of the time, you'll see that both extremes are inaccurate, and that's usually the way it is with these things. They do show that Constantine's conversion was different from that of other Christians. It definitely was not exactly the same. We've already studied this in this series. Converts at the time were put through a long process of discipleship and instruction. In fact, we know that they were put on a plan that from the time they came into the church, 
until the time they were baptized, which really that's when the church accepted them as really being Christians, their baptism. They had a three-year-long process of discipleship in which they were heavily under the leadership and the discipleship of a Christian leader who would take them under their wing and instruct them in the faith and show them what it meant to live a Christian life. That was a huge commitment, and Constantine didn't do any of that. He did not put himself under the guidance of any Christian leader for any amount of time whatsoever. In fact, throughout his life, he never did that. He definitely had Christian teachers and leaders around him, but as far as him putting himself under anyone's authority, he never did that, never in his life. So we look at Constantine, and we don't see some of the same things we see in other Christians. We don't see exactly what we would like to see if we really study history when it comes to his conversion. So that leads to a question that people, again, have debated and probably still have today. Was Constantine really a Christian? Constantine interacted with Christian leaders such as Lactantius and Osius, but he never put himself under their authority like another Christian would have had to have done. Constantine pretty much determined his own religious practices, and he was very free to intervene in the life of the church. We're going to see that as we go through this. He intervened quite a lot, and a lot of the things that exist now that we do even practice to this day, you're going to find out next week, came about because of this man, Constantine. In fact, he considered himself the Bishop of Bishops. Now, that is the source of some major, major problems and conflicts that are coming down the line. From this moment on, there are some conflicts of interest and some developments as a result of that that come from these political leaders looking at themselves as Christians and therefore because they're the leader of the country, they must therefore then be the leader of the church if they're a part of it. That brings in some bad, bad stuff. It starts right here. You think about somebody like a Constantine, and you want a king, an emperor, a political leader. As a Christian, their religious devotion, their life of, uh, in Christ should permeate their being and their life so much that it definitely influenced them as a ruler. But what about the other side of that when... They bring in that role as a ruler and a political leader into their position in the church and into the way they see themselves as a part of the Christian church. That is problematic. And it starts here, and it just keeps on going, and there's even issues about it now. But it, it radically changes the nature of the very church. Constantine seeing himself as the bishop of bishops. And yet, repeatedly, even after his conversion, Constantine took part in pagan rites. He never shied away from it. He was looked at as being the emperor of the Roman Empire, as also being not just the head of the Christian church that he put himself in, kind of put himself in place there, but he was a, the head of the pagan religion. And he didn't shy away from that. Constantine never came out and said, oh, no, I'm not, don't put me in that place. He went along with it. He never, he didn't really see that there was any conflict between these two worlds. And in some ways, you understand that a person that was not brought into an understanding of what it means to be a Christian might not get this, because in his way of thinking, it was not a conflict. I'm not making an excuse for him or saying it's right, because it's not. 
but he never really got that training. He never got that understanding, maybe later in his life, but definitely not for most of it, the rest of it. Constantine, you look at him and you see these inconsistencies. There's a lot of them. In fact, Constantine was not technically considered to be a Christian by the church because, remember, they did not consider you to be a true convert to Christianity before you were baptized, and he couldn't be baptized because you, he didn't go through the process to get baptism. So the, this man who was lauded as this great Christian emperor, the man who said he was the head of the church, the bishop of bishops, would not have, would not have even really been considered to be a Christian. Most Christians would have looked at him as being a very sympathetic figure, somebody that had helped them, but may probably not truly a Christian in the sense that they understood it. Now, is that the way God looks at it? No, I don't think so. I don't think that God tells you anywhere in Scripture that you have to go through a three-year discipleship and then be baptized in order to become a Christian. That's not, that's not there. So they're not looking at it completely correctly either. But they're definitely seeing in Constantine somebody who has not paid the price that they have and has not taken the faith the way that they have. And they've got a problem with that, and that's understandable. On the other hand, Constantine was not this opportunist either. And the reason we know that is there was no advantage to him taking on Christianity. Christians were of the poorer, lower classes. They were persecuted for most of the time that they had been members of the Roman Empire. They were not looked at in any kind of social way, intellectual way, philosophical way, as being anything advantageous about them. So there really wasn't anything for Constantine to to look at as being, oh, if I'll just jump in on this and, and claim I'm a Christian, I'm going to get all the support, I'm going to get all these advantages. It really wasn't. So you can't, you can't see it as being that way. This is an opinion from looking at this and, and reading the authors that I've read. I, I do agree with this. You may not, and that's fine. It's just an evaluation from historical understanding that you can make, and it may be right, it may be wrong. But it does seem likely that Constantine was a sincere believer in the power of Christ, but he probably understood that power in a way different from other Christians of that day, and one of the big reasons for that was the position that he held and what he was trying to achieve. Christians at the time were lower-class people trying to make it through their day, trying to keep from being killed, trying to survive. They needed God to provide their daily bread. They needed God to help them to become what they felt like they should be in their faith. Constantine's coming from a different perspective here. Most of those things were not even concerns of his at all, ever. He's looking at taking power and consolidating it and ruling an empire. And so what he saw in Christianity was he did believe in the power of the God that Christ represented, and he wanted that power in his life to help him in what he was trying to do. He relied on the goodwill of the Christian God. That's what he wanted. When you read Constantine's own statements about his faith, what you see is a sincere man whose understanding of the Christian faith was meager. A person who was very sincere, he comes off that way in what you read, but he didn't really understand what it was all about, and he probably never did. Now, what does that make a person? Was Constantine a Christian? I don't think any of us can answer that question. And I would never want to make a judgment on a man's heart. The Bible tells us we know people by their fruit. 
you look at the fruit of Constantine, what do you see? There's a lot of good things. There's definitely a lot of good things. There's also some problematic things. But when we look at our own lives, don't we see the same stuff? There's some things that I look at my life that I can say, you know what? I may not be everything that I should be, but I'm sure not what I used to be. God has brought me a long way. I see the fruit there. But then there are other places where I look at it and say, I ought to be better than that by now. I shouldn't still be struggling with some of the same things. So it's easy for us to make these judgments in a different time, a different place, a different understanding. I would never judge a man's heart. If he says he's a Christian, I'll accept him as a, as a brother. God's the one who judges ultimately. And it's not a deal where he's judging just based on you did good here, you did bad there. But he'll judge based on what he judges for all of us, whether we have a relationship with him through faith in Jesus Christ. Constantine may have had that. He may not have. It may have even happened later in his life on his deathbed. We don't know. God knows that, and I guess one day we'll find out. Right now, we don't know that. I'm going to stop right here because I'm almost at my 30 minutes max, and the next part of this is to look at the impact of Constantine on Christianity. We could go forward with this, and I would go way over my time, and honestly, I believe there's enough material for a whole other section, a whole other part of this. So I'm going to hold off on that. I don't want to shortchange it, and I also don't want to go way, way, way over and you not be able to stick with me on this because it is very important. What you're going to find, I think you're going to really enjoy this, this one next week. In fact, from here on out, I don't know how much you like these, but every week it's going to be some just incredible stuff you're going to start seeing. Pieces are going to start falling in place, and you're going to start understanding a whole lot more about why we do what we do, why we believe what we believe, and you're going to find out some of the sources of some of this stuff are coming from places that you never thought it did. I will tell you this, after you listen to this presentation next week, I don't think you'll be able to walk through the doors of the church and go into a worship service and ever look at it exactly the same way once you realize how much of not just the worship service itself, the way it's constructed, but even the very physical being owes a lot to and was heavily, heavily influenced by this man, Constantine. We don't think about that, but it's true. See, we're going to find out a lot more about that next week. I'm excited about that lesson, and I'm glad that you were a part of this today. So again, as I bid you farewell, I hope you have a great rest of your week. I uh, hope that you'll be able to join me again next week, and want to thank again my the author of this book that I've been reading, The Story of Christianity, Volume 1. This is a book I read, I think I've mentioned this the first couple of episodes, but this was a book I read years ago as a, I think an undergrad, undergrad work actually is a student at East Texas Baptist University, but also as a seminary student, uh, The Story of Christianity, Volume 1, Gusto L. Gonzalez. I have this book from those days on my shelf. I think it's been, I think there's a new edition of it now. But regardless of that, it's a great book. If you ever get the chance to pick it up, I'd encourage you to. If not, that's okay. You're getting a lot of it here. And just want to acknowledge that because I'm getting a lot of my material from that. So again, God bless. See you next week.